0: ruth 4 1-12 now boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold the redeemer of whom boaz had spoken came by so boaz said turn aside friend sit down here and he turned aside and sat down and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said sit down here so they sat down then he said to the redeemer Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilean and to Malon also Ruth the Moabite the widow of Malon I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place you are witnesses this day Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Thanks, Jess. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you, good to be with you uh, this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier, uh, and it's my privilege to open up the word with you and for you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn, if you would, to Ruth, Chapter 4, Ruth chapter 4, continuing on if you're new with us this morning or if it's your first time visiting with us, we're continuing on in a series uh, in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth, looking at the life uh, of this truly amazing woman. And we came out of a passage last week where we talked about all of these different cultural elements that were at play, a lot of obscure references, and we're just going to continue right on in that theme uh, this morning, addressing all kinds of stuff that makes no sense within, the, within our modern context, um, but which really reveals the beauty and the providence of our God. And so if you've been with us, you, you've begun to see this blooming romance between Ruth and Boaz. You've seen them interact. You've, you, you've been able to witness through the, through the pages of Scripture the way that this couple love each other, that they care for each other, that there is the very beginnings uh, of a new relationship. And so as we came to the portion that we addressed last week, and I'm not going to rehearse the whole story for you, but as we, as we came to the passage that we addressed last week, Naomi recognized that this relationship wasn't quite moving as quickly as it ought to have. And so though there was a friendship beginning, and though there were the seeds uh, of a deeper relationship, a next step needed to be taken. And so at Naomi's behest, Ruth goes to Boaz during the evening after he's uh, eaten and had something to drink. And at the end of a long day, she lays at his feet. And when he wakes up at midnight, she says to him, essentially, if you will have me, I will be your wife. So she doesn't quite propose marriage, but she does just everything short of that uh, in, in suggesting to Boaz that she's interested in a relationship if he's also interested. And so they have this clear affection for one another. They have this uh, they have this um, relationship that is built on all of the right things uh, on top of their attraction and how well they get along and on the way that they care for each other and respect each other. It appears as though God is leading them together, but at the end of that interaction last week, Boaz closes by saying, there is a closer redeemer with whom I must first check. In other words, there is somebody closer to you, closer to the, to the line of your now deceased husband, who has essentially first right of refusal to care for you and to provide for you. That In God's sovereignty, he had provided a means by which a widow could be taken care of in a culture where they were not uh, really permitted to have jobs, where they could not gain an income, where they were entirely dependent on the provision of a husband or on their sons. And so as a woman who had neither of those things, she's dependent on someone else for her provision. And in God's provision, he had provided this way for her to be cared for. But Boaz says, before we can continue with this relationship and before we take any next steps, we need to make sure we're doing this the right way. And so it's in this waiting, it's in this waiting that our story picks up today. And I don't want to skip past that idea of waiting. Because I think the waiting that's occurring in this text is the very first thing that we ought to notice. There is almost nothing, at least for me in my life, that reveals my own need for sanctification like waiting. And so whether it's waiting in line at a DMV or at a restaurant, or whether it's waiting behind somebody who's driving entirely too slow in the left-hand lane of the highway, uh, or, or whether it's being stopped, uh, stopped in, in the middle of rush hour in traffic, I mean, there is something about those circumstances that just steams me. It just bubbles up inside me, and it reveals my own immaturity. It reveals my own need for sanctification and growth. But waiting does that to us, And what's interesting is, as people, it really doesn't matter if we're waiting for something good or waiting for something bad. Most of us just want to find out what's going to happen. If there's going to be bad news, just give me the bad news. If I have to sit and look at the phone and wait for the doctor to call with bad news, that's the part that's that's going to drive me nuts. Or likewise, if there's something good and pleasant in your life. If you're looking forward to marriage or looking forward to the coming of a child or looking forward to a different relationship, if you're looking forward to a vacation or to time off, if you're looking forward to the upcoming holidays or something about that, even in a good sense, that still kind of just agitates us in the waiting. And yet it is in the midst of that waiting that God reveals his care, his love, and his provision. It's in that waiting that God reveals reveals his will to us. It's in that waiting that he reveals his grace for the particular moments that we, in which we find ourselves. And so imagine, therefore, how difficult the waiting must have been for Ruth. Now, we know the rest of the story. We realize that she's not gonna have to wait that long, but she doesn't necessarily know that at this point, right? We have the advantage of knowing the rest of the story. Here she is, she's just put herself on the line for Boaz, she's just declared his, her, her love for him, she's doing all of this in light of her newfound faith, In the one true god of israel she's willing to commit herself and covenant herself to this man who also loves god with all of his heart they have a clear attraction for one another they get along well there's all kinds of mutual respect and admiration and on top of that they have a very clear sense that god is leading them in this see by any cultural standard that we could muster any modern cultural standard at least there was no reason for them to wait and yet, what we, what we see in the life of Ruth and Boaz is not just a desire to do the right thing, but to do it in a right way. And by doing that, they were declaring something. They were declaring what ultimately Solomon was going to declare in his testament, where he said, do not awaken love before it's time. What a unique challenge, especially in the context like like the one in which we live. I mean, here are these people who cared so much for each other and loved each other and pursued each other. But what they were saying in this moment is your character before God, your personal holiness, your sanctification and growth in him is more important than the particular draw that I feel to you right now. It's a difficult thing. And rather than justifying what would have been very easy for them to justify, they determined to follow things through to, they they determined to carefully not allow their passions to run ahead of them. And in doing so, here's what they ultimately did. And this is the part that we can carry into our relationships, whether romantic or non. Uh, Ultimately what they were doing is they were caring for the integrity of their relationship They were saying it's more important that we do things the right way and that in the process even of courtship in this particular circumstance, Boaz is saying, I want to care for you and I want to love you and I want to protect you and I'm even going to do that in the way that I go about pursuing a relationship with you. And Ruth is looking at this saying, I realize that I need provision, I realize that I need help, I realize that I'm lonely, I realize that I want to be married, I realize that I need all of these things, but she's saying, ultimately it is more important that my relationship with God go unhindered and my relationship with Boaz remain pure than that I ultimately get those things that I know I want. And in doing this, they were also declaring something about who their God was and is, They were declaring something about the very reputation of God. I mean, Boaz, as a member of the nation of Israel, and Ruth, as a convert to the worship of the one true God, they were upholding the custom that God himself had ordained. And in doing all of that, they were continuing to demonstrate their faith. Because by approaching things in the manner in which we're about to see, they were risking the possibility of their very relationship coming to fruition. There was a chance that by doing things the right way according to what God had ordained, Ruth and Boaz would not end up together. But they had so much faith and confidence in the goodness of their God that they determined there was no other way to proceed but to trust him And so here in this text, we find the very next morning, Boaz follows through on his word. He sets out looking for this man, the the, the first in line, the nearer kinsman, redeemer. And it says this, it says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and he sat down there. So if you've ever been to portions of Europe or certainly if you've ever been to the Middle East, you can kind of imagine this scene. Because countries that have a a far longer history than our own geographically uh, are set up very differently than ours. I mean, I remember several years ago, Jessica and I uh, were in Italy, and I remember as uh, as our plane landed in Venice and then as ultimately we made our way into various cities throughout the region, I remember just being struck by how different everything was, and not just culturally and not just the language, but even the way that the whole city itself was structured. Because what what happened is you had these very old cities that essentially uh, were built up as people moved into them. And because of that, roads really aren't straight and they kind of curve and they follow the path that maybe a mule would have trod at one point or another. I mean, this is kind of the way the whole city is set up. And so you have streets that are incredibly narrow. You have whole portions of major cities, at least in Italy where we were, uh, where, where car traffic couldn't get through because the, the streets weren't wide enough to carry them. And so all you have is foot traffic, and because of that, there's these streets that are so incredibly narrow that you can hardly get past another person walking the other way. And so what the Italians and ultimately what we see in this passage uh, far before then, what we see them, what we see these cities doing is establishing whole portions of the city that are going to be open spaces for people to gather and to meet. So where we were, uh, they had established piazzas. And so at night, people would come from all over the city into these massive open spaces and there'd be parties and people having drinks and people having conversations and spending time together. It was a place for, for culture essentially to happen, for conversations to happen, for relationships relationships to happen. And in the case of this passage, the city gate, this wide open area at the very entrance to the city, was a place people would go to conduct business. It was a place that they would meet in a time before cell phones. It was a place for them to gather and, and maybe meet with city officials if they had particular questions or legal issues that needed to be carried out. So this is exactly uh, where we find ourselves. Boaz has made his way through the narrow streets of Bethlehem. He's come to the gated entrance of the city. He's come to this open square where people gather and elders sit. This is the place where disagreements are settled and the law is established. And look what it says And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. This is very much uh, like the first couple chapters of Ruth where it says that Ruth happened upon the field of Boaz. Boaz goes to the center of the city looking for this one particular individual, the one person who is a more near kinsman redeemer than he is. He's looking for this one individual and he just happens to see him as he enters into the city gates. And so he says to him, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And then Boaz took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. So he's gonna have this conversation with this gentleman and he wants to establish it in the eyes of witnesses. He wants everyone to know, to make sure that there is no shadow of a doubt as to what is about to take place. And look then what happens beginning in verse three and pay attention to the way that Boaz constructs this conversation because it's fascinating. Then he said to the redeemer, redeem it now again we probably know the end of the story unless you haven't been reading ahead in which you're which case you're in for a surprise but we hear this and immediately our hearts sink oh boaz you missed your shot this was your opportunity why did you go find this guy you could have had everything you wanted and so he comes to him and and to to understand what's really happening in this text i mean first of all this is the first time we've heard anything about any land I mean, what we knew about, uh, about Ruth and Naomi up until this point is that they're absolutely broke, that they're dependent on others for their provision to the point where they're gleaning in the field of Boaz, going around the edges and gathering up extra crops just to make ends meet. And Boaz comes in and says, oh, by the way, Naomi has this field that she's looking uh, to sell or she's looking to sell the rights of it. So what's actually happening here? Well, first of all, I would point out this is, representative of the desperate state of affairs for Naomi. If she had any land at all to her name, if she had anything that belonged to her, anything that was in the name of her husband, Elimelech, anything that she could have sold for some sort of profit, she would have been very, very slow to sell it. Because this isn't like today where you sell one house and you go buy another house. You sell one piece of land and you go purchase another piece of land. I mean, in this period of time, your land was everything. It was your inheritance. It was your legacy. It was all of your wealth. It was your family business. Who you were and everything that you had was directly connected to the land that you owned. And so we're not entirely sure how all of this plays out. Some commentators speculate that perhaps, uh, perhaps somebody's, uh, ho- or perhaps rather Naomi is holding the deed to Elimelech's land, but now she needed to sell it in order to garner the money for it. Others speculate that perhaps, in Elimelech's absence, the land had actually been confiscated that somebody else had actually gone in and taken it over while he was away in Moab and was now sitting on the land. And so in order to get the land back, uh, Naomi needed to make a claim on the land and purchase it. And so she needed a redeemer to do that for her. But either way, this is a big deal because in this culture, people did not just sell land. This was your everything your name and your business and the name of your children and the business that they would enter, your legacy, your inheritance, everything was wrapped up in this. And so you wouldn't have sold your land unless you were absolutely desperate. It'd be like cashing out your retirement to put food on the table. I mean, that's the last thing you want to touch. You don't touch it unless you absolutely have to. And so here Boaz comes to this nearer kinsman who had the first right of refusal to buy the land. And he says, look, if you'll, if you'll redeem it, if you'll purchase it, go ahead and do it. That would be the right thing to do. But if not, then just allow it to pass to me. And so this kinsman redeemer hears, hears the offer. And in this moment, he thinks he stumbled on a winning lottery ticket. You're telling me there is a, there's a piece of land in this city that I can purchase and I can add it to my portfolio? I can add it to my legacy. I can just give up a chunk of my money and I can own more land and my children will inherit more and my name will go down further in history and my family will be more established. You're telling me that's the offer and he leaps at the opportunity. Absolutely, if I can build my business, if I can leave a legacy, absolutely I'm gonna take advantage of this. But this is where you see the shrewd business skills of Boaz because at no point in this interaction is he deceitful but he's certainly very shrewd. And look what he says then in verse five. After the man has agreed to buy the land, Boaz said, by the way, it's not in your Bibles, but I'm adding it. (laughs) The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So I love this interaction. Boaz initially leaves out what ends up being a fairly important bit of information uh, as this guy is trying to make this decision. And So so the, the gentleman agrees, I'll buy the land, I'll take it off your hands, that's no problem, I can add this to my portfolio. And Boaz's response then is, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, you know, with the property, you're going to get the house, uh, and you're going to get the appliances, and just, you know, to throw it in there, you're also going to get this Moabite woman and a bitter mother-in-law. That's not a good deal. Anybody want to sign on that? I mean, this changes the calculation quite a bit. But then Boaz mentions this phrase that is worth teasing out. He says to the Redeemer, You will do this in order to perpetuate the name of the dead. See what this would have. What this would have required in this moment is for this kinsman redeemer to spend the money up front to purchase this parcel of land, and in addition, to care for Ruth and Naomi. And part of his responsibility as a kinsman redeemer then would have also been to perpetuate the line of Elimelech, to perpetuate the line of Malon. In other words, his responsibility would have been to marry Ruth and to have children with her, if God permitted So that eventually, that land could be left to her children. And all of a sudden, the business sense of this deal completely breaks down, and this gentleman says, wait a minute, so you're saying I've got to spend my money to buy this land, and if all goes according to plan, my children will walk away with less money and no additional land? No deal. And frankly, it's hard to criticize this man's decision. He's making a calculated decision decision in regard to his family but the man's decision at this point is really motivated by his own personal financial gain and he's concerned secondly perhaps with Ruth and Naomi but once again we see the character of Boaz in this moment because Boaz is looking at this and saying, I realize that it's going to cost me. I realize that I have virtually nothing to gain from this offer. I realize that this doesn't benefit my family heritage. I realize and understand what Boaz was signing up for. He says, I understand that by virtue of me potentially taking Ruth as my wife, if we have children, they will go down within the line of Elimelech, not within my line. Think about what he's giving up in this moment. He's giving up culturally everything that is valuable to him. But he's saying, I care so much for Ruth and so much for Naomi and so much to do the right thing before God that I'm willing to do that. Now look at what it says in verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Another obscure cultural reference. In fact, so obscure that if you'll notice, the author of the book of Ruth in this moment is explaining even to the original audience what this exchanging of sandals was. I mean, a lot of commentators have speculated that at the point this was written, uh, at the point at which this was written, uh, the process of exchanging sandals or exchanging shoes at the closing of a business deal had already passed. So this is already an old tradition at this point. And what's happening is when a business deal would be closed or would be sealed, you wanted some sort of uh, some sort of recognition that a deal would have happened. And so you'd gather the elders of a town together, and as the two men would exchange the property, they would, ex- they would take off their shoes and exchange them one to another. And I would imagine if you went to a house closing and you ended that deal by taking your shoe off and giving it to somebody else, you would have a pretty clear recollection of that deal having taken place. And that's exactly what's happening here. The idea was... If at any point the seller comes back and says, oh, no, 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 I never sold that to him. That's still my property. You could just hold up your shoe. Go ask the elders. See if they remember this exchange taking place. Verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz here makes his intentions known and before everybody, not just the elders, but everyone that gathers around, he says, I want it to be known what just took place. I'm purchasing this land that used to belong to Elimelech. I'm taking Ruth as my wife. I'm gonna care for her and love her. And if God blesses, we're gonna have children together so that the name of Elimelech can continue going forward. This is Boaz's farewell speech in this book. This is the last thing we have recorded that was spoken by him. And look at what he uses this opportunity for. Look at the reason he gives for marrying Ruth to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. He says, a big part of my motivation for marrying Ruth is that I don't want the name of Elimelech to fall away. Now that certainly wasn't the only reason, but this is a man who is pursuing marriage for very selfless reasons. I mean, Boaz and everything that he does that's recorded for us is motivated first and foremost by doing what was right. And in our modern hearing, we stop and think, well, that doesn't sound very romantic. He married her because he wanted to do the right thing. Where's the love? Where's the passion? Where's the excitement? Where's the sensuality? Where's the desire? Where are all of the things that people look for in marriage? But when you stop and think about it, can you think of anything that is more romantic than an individual pursuing a spouse for the benefit of that spouse and not just him or herself? See, Boaz wasn't looking at this saying, Ruth, I want to marry you because I think you're beautiful and I think you're attractive and I think you're wonderful and I think you can do great things for my career and I think you'll make a good mom and I think you'll do all of these different things, though, though all of those things may have been true. He's looking at her and saying, I'm going to be sacrificial in my love. I'm going to pursue you for your benefit. See, this is the kind of love that surpasses mere attraction or sensuality or comfort or convenience. This is the kind of person you want with you when you get the bad news, when you get the bad prognosis from the doctor, when finances are tight, when you're feeble and unable to care for yourself. This is the kind of men. Man, rather, that I hope we as men would strive to be like. Certainly the kind of man that I'd want a daughter to marry. And the response of the elders to this declaration of Boaz was affirmation and celebration. And here's the reason that that's worth mentioning, especially in our modern context, once again. I came across a quote this week from David Atkinson who wrote a a brilliant commentary on this book and he, he made this statement in passing and it just leapt off the page at me. In response to the elders affirming and celebrating with Boaz, he wrote, public witness is always a part of covenant making. Public witness is always a part of covenant making. So notice, Ruth and Boaz didn't make classic arguments of a couple who act like they're married but without the commitment of marriage. These weren't people who were just trying out to see if marriage was going to work for them. These weren't people who wanted all the benefits of marriage without the covenant or commitment of marriage. They weren't trying out their physical relationship to see if they're compatible. They didn't claim that they were committed to each other in their hearts without actually declaring their love in front of other people. They didn't claim that they were married in God's eyes. They said, in order to have a true covenantal relationship, we want everyone to know that we are committing together. And this is at the heart of what we as people do. It's the reason why we have weddings, to have that public declaration. When they establish their covenant with each other in the presence of men, and look at what the elders pray over them. They prayed, may it be so, and may your family be blessed because of the children that you have. Now, we'll talk about that more next week, but there was no one there on that day who would have guessed the significance of that prayer. But what I want to leave you with is really one thought. In an obscure text like this one, there's one element that leapt out at me this week. It's interesting to me that in a book that cares so much about the meanings of names and all the way back from the beginning, you look at the name of a and his name means God is king. And you look at the, uh, the name of Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet. You look at uh, you look at the names of their children, Malon and Kilion, which meant sickly. And then you see the significance of Naomi changing her name and saying, don't even call me Naomi, which means sweet. I don't even deserve that name anymore. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. And in in a book that cares so much about the significance of names, it's interesting to note that the gentleman who is in first position to be the redeemer has no listed name. Now, before I go on, let me just say, I don't want to make too much about things that the Bible doesn't actually spell out. There may be multiple reasons why his name is left out of the record of Scripture, but it's worth noting that this man passed on his opportunity to redeem Ruth, to demonstrate the covenantal care and love of God in an order to maintain his own line and maintain his own name. And yet we don't find his name in Scripture And it's equally interesting to note that this man, Boaz, who was willing to give up his own name for the sake of carrying on a Limelech's line is the man whose name we are reading 3,000 years later. And it really reminded me this week of what Jesus himself declares in Matthew 16, 24, when he says this, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, here's at least one of the promises of this story. You can try, you can try to rush the hand of God. And you can try to justify in your own mind the reason that things ought to happen the way that they ought to happen. You can try to rationalize away the responsibility that you have before God or what you know to be true about him. You can try to rush the hand of God and in the process, lose out on the joy that he has reserved for you. Or you can wait on him. You can trust his timing. And you can be amazed at his provision. And over and over in this story, whether it's Elimelech or Naomi, and the demonstration of a lack of faith of Elimelech leaving the land to try to chase down his own provision, rejecting the fact that God had already promised he would take care of him. Or whether it's Ruth trusting in the provision of God, even though she had no idea where it was going to come from or whether it was Ruth and Boaz together, realizing that they loved each other and realizing that they were a great fit and realizing they wanted to be together, but declaring, no, we're gonna do this the right way in the right time, we consistently see that message. So you can try your best to preserve your own name, to make something of yourself, to leave a legacy, to garner power and money and happiness. Or you can trust and in the process find far deeper joy. But when you trust in the goodness of God, in the timing of God, you discover the truth that God is not trying to keep you from good things. When God puts us in a position to wait or he puts us in a position where we can't quite see how his provision is going to meet our need, he is simultaneously putting us in a position to see his hand act in far greater ways than we could possibly imagine. And there's all kinds of other themes that we could pull out of this text. I mean, you could stop and you could preach an entire sermon and I'm tempted to do it, but I'm not going to do it. You could stop and preach an entire sermon on the fact uh, that in verse excuse me, in verse 11, it says, uh, I want this blessing to be on you so that like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, here you have this Old Testament, patriarchal, male-dominated society in which Rachel and Leah are specifically named as being great contributors to the nation of Israel. The prominence of of women in the Old Testament comes up in this text. God's hand of provision comes in this text. All kinds of different themes, but what I want to leave you with is this idea that Boaz was willing to lose his wealth and in the process he gained a name. And by the same token, the first kinsman redeemer, in an effort to preserve his own name and garner things to himself, is left nameless in this story. Would we be a people, whether rich or poor, whether people from broken families and heartbreaking situations or intact families and blessed situations, would we as a people realize that God has placed us where we are with a perfect intentionality? which is for our lives to be pointers, signposts to his goodness and his care and his love and his grace. And would we hear the call of Jesus in the book of Matthew to be willing to take up our crosses and to follow him, to be willing to lay our lives down for his sake? Why? So that we may actually find life to be willing down our own names and our own egos and our own agendas and our own desires and our own passions and our own pursuits should God lead us to do that for the sake of garnering something far, far greater, which is a name in Jesus Christ that cannot be taken away, provision in Christ that we cannot imagine. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. If I can remember the quote and I didn't write it down and I didn't look it up, there was a quote by a man named Jim Elliot who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that was the exchange that Ruth and Boaz entered into. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the beautiful example of Ruth and Boaz. And Lord, we thank you for the confidence that we can have when we wait on your timing. For the peace that we can have when we live according to your will. And for the joy that we can have when we trust you for our provision, rather than trying to make a name for ourselves. So Lord, we pray that we would be a people who live not for this world, not for its comforts or its distractions, but that we would deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. Lord, we pray that we would do that believing that you are able to do above all that we ask or think. God, would we find ourselves in our lives, having been given opportunities, would we be faithful and shrewd and also innocent in our dealings? Like Boaz, would we be wise with the things you've entrusted to us? And God, if we find ourselves in an area of lack or need, would we, like Ruth, trust and depend on your name? Would we live for what is temporal and not be satisfied, or rather live for what is eternal and not be satisfied with the temporal? And so we thank you that this story isn't finished, and that this isn't a mere moral tale but God, that we would see it for what it is, a picture of your love and your pursuit of your bride, the church. So help us to live in light of the name you've given us. And we'll give you all the praise and the honor and the glory for it.